So, he grows up as a foreigner in a foreign land. That brings us to chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period of time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of the slave labor. Slave labor. They cried out their desperate cry because of their slave labor went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God understood. Now, here's what's significant. The Pharaoh is now dead. We're going to learn later it's been 40 years. Stephen's going to tell us this in Acts chapter 7. Okay, so Moses is now 80 years old. That Pharaoh that hated him, wanted him dead, is dead and gone. And God is this significant. We've only heard God one time so far. And God blessed the midwives and with their own family. But now it's time for God to act. And notice how it says, and God heard their cries, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant, and God saw the Israelites, and God understood. It's kind of making up for chapter 1 and 2 of that absence. And so the idea is that you need to understand that God hears the cries of his people. Just like he heard the blood of Abel crying out after his murder, he hears the cries. And if you think that he doesn't care, you realize now that he remembered his covenant and he's ready to go to action. Now, remembering doesn't mean like, oh, crap, for the last 400 years I've forgotten about my people. Oh, yeah, that thing with Abraham. <laughs> remember means to go to action. Okay, The word remember means to put into place what you had promised. Okay? So if I promise my children we'll get ice cream at the end of this week for all your hard work, then I can say on Saturday, I remembered my promise, let's go get ice cream. That doesn't automatically assume that I've forgotten. It means it's time to fulfill what I have promised you. And this is important to understand. Why has God waited so long? Well, we kind of talked about one of the reasons last week is to be slaves is going to humble them. It's going to make it their identity. They're going to be made the ruling nation over the entire world. And most of the world are Orphans, widows, foreigners, servants. What better way to have them have compassion for these people than to bend that themselves? And that's important because if people have never suffered and they've never been oppressed and they've never been downtrodden and they go straight to power and wealth, they don't tend to care about those people. And if the majority of your population is that and God's greatest heart is for those people, then you better make sure that your covenant people do relate to that. And this is going to be a recurrent theme all throughout the law. God's going to say, take care of the foreigners. Because remember that you yourself were once a foreigner. And in fact, when he gets later to the exile, God's going to come to them and say, because you did not take care of the foreigners, I'm taking you into exile. It's one of three dominant reasons for their exile. There's only three reasons given for their exile, and that's a huge one. The social injustice of Israel towards the oppressed. And so this is going to be a huge thing in God's heart, is taking care of the press, taking care of the downtrodden, the socially rejected. And so this long period goes away, and God remembers his covenant. The other reason that God's waiting so long is back in Genesis chapter 15, we're told that God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and he makes the covenant, Abraham a covenant with him official, And he says, 
your people, your descendants are going to be enslaved for four generations. Then I will bring them out. And so now you should be immediately remembering what he said to Abraham. And you now know God can now go to action because the time that he prophesied is now up. This is not God being lazy. This is not God being forgetful. This is not God growing a heart over time period like the Grinch. This is God saying they have to be there. Now, the reason we're given is that the sin of the Amorites is not yet ripe. Meaning that the only way you can truly, you're going to start becoming an incredibly numerous people. And that means that you're going to over, you're going to take over this land. And you're going to drive the Canaanites out. And that's not good. You can't just kill and kick people out because you want the land. So you can't live here. You've got to go somewhere else where they can handle you. And that's Egypt which will also serve my purpose of trials builds character. But 400 years from now, the Amorites and the Canaanites are going to be so sinful and so evil that there will be no repentance in them. They will never, ever, ever repent. And then as a just God, I have to deal with them. And that's when you can take the land because that's when it will be just. And so you can't take it now because they're not sinful enough and they don't deserve this punishment yet. But because I'm a just God, you'll stay out. But when they do deserve it, that's when I'll bring you back. Now, I know that's like a way bigger issue of like, okay, but how can God do that? Da, 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 da. Well, and that's for the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua. So you'll just have to wait for that one. So. But come back. So this is what he's doing. He's remembering that it's time to do what he said he would do. And now... God comes full force into the story. Now Moses was shepherding the flock of his father, Je- father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of God to Horeb. We've never been told about the mountain of God yet. This is brand new in the Bible. But what you do need to understand is every God has a mountain. Okay, You know this Mount Olympus is where Zeus and the gods were on. The mountains were high, 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 high up in the air. And if you want to show everybody else how much of a peon you are, you put your throne above everybody else. And if you're a god, your throne's got to be really high. And so you have to understand, in Egyptian um, mythologies and in in Canaanite mythologies and Babylonian, all of them, the gods are on top of the mountains. When we get to Canaan, their high god is Baal, and he is on the mountain Zaphon. Okay, Egypt is probably the only exception because... They don't have mountains, but that's why they build pyramids, so the gods can be above you. Okay, the pyramids are actually not tombs, they're temples, and so they rest on top of that. And so the reality is the gods are there. So God now says, well, if you want to see me as a god, then I'll get up on a mountain. Now, that sounds a little too casual, but that's a little bit. God does, because here's the point. There's a part of God that he's going to make it very clear that he's the god of everything. Like, when the God has a mountain, that's his home. And then all the land around it is his. But once you get beyond that, he doesn't control it anymore. Other gods do. Are there in that nation. But over and over and over again, God is going to make it very clear, the entire world is mine. It's, the entire world is my throne. I'm not limited to a mountain. But at the same time, these are Israelites. And the only time they understand I'm a God is if he's on a mountain. So there's a huge tension here. 
Because the minute God, God has to put himself on the mountain, so to speak, to communicate who he is to them. And then after he makes that point, he can step off the mountain. And this is why you never learn about Horeb after Exodus and Leviticus. And then he's not limited to a mountain anymore. And he's on that mountain, that mountain, that mountain, that mountain. So he doesn't really want to stay up there. But he's got to start there because he's bringing a bunch of Egyptians or slaves, Hebrews out who have lost their understanding of Yahweh. But the minute he does that, he automatically risks the misunderstanding his localness. That he's not local. But at the same time, by claiming the mountain, he also makes himself locally involved in their lives. Do you, does that make sense? He's got to pick a mountain to communicate his godhood. But then he risks that they'll think that he's limited to just this region. But at the same time, by picking a mountain where they're going to be, he shows himself as directly and intimately involved in their life rather than some distant god that's not involved. And so this is the purpose of this mountain here. This is where he's going to establish his sovereignty at the same time his intimacy. And when we get to the tabernacle, we'll talk about the significance of that and why he did what he did there. Now, you also know this mountain as Mount what? Sinai. Sinai. Right? Or as a professor I had once called it Sinai. Okay, Sinai. That's what it was, Sinai. Okay? Um, Here's what our best understanding is. Horeb is most likely the mountain range, where Mount Sinai is a specific peak. So whenever Mount Sinai or Horeb is talked about at a distance, it typically is called Horeb. But when they get close to it, it tends to be called Sinai. And then it's going to become Sinai mostly in theological language. So Horeb then also is being used more often as geography, but Sinai is used more often in theological language as the covenant and the laws and all that kind of stuff. So that's our best understanding of how these two words are being used together. So he's shepherding his flocks, and he came to the Mount Horeb. Now notice that unlike the Ten Commandments movie, the sheep does not run away, and he has to follow it, and he stumbles upon it. That might have been true, but that's all made up. So notice that he's shepherding his flock, and he looks over, and he sees a burning bush that is not consumed. Okay, this is significant. Why a burning bush? Okay, a couple reasons. One, it's very, very, very important for you to understand that the not consuming part, that it's not getting burnt up, because that makes this a supernatural event. Now, some scholars have said, well, bushes in this time period, where this is the wilderness territory, they're very, there's very few green around bushes, and it's, um, they're just out there, and they're more like tumbleweeds that are planted in the ground, and the desert is so hot that they, these things have been known to spontaneously burst into flames. So the ding-dong Moses is out there, he sees a burst, and he thinks it's some kind of supernatural experience, maybe got hit in the head, had a hallucinogenic experience, and he thinks he has a God moment. Here's the problem with that. He's a shepherd. He does this every single day of his life for 40 years. He's used to seeing natural phenomenons of brushes bursting into flames. That would not catch his eye. After 40 years of shepherding, that would be like, well, okay. Okay, it's like when we're going out to the farm and people are like, oh my gosh, it's a deer. And my family's like, yeah, okay. Because they see it all the time. 
Okay, it's not unusual. It's not something they want to look at anymore. But for him, that's how it's going to be. But this thing caught his attention. That means that it is different, that this experienced man is seeing something that he's never seen before. So that's the important thing. It's not the bush on fire that caught his attention. That would catch our attention. It's the fact that this bush is not dying out that caught his attention. Now, why a bush? Bush Bushes are often used as symbols of nations, trees. Okay, one thing you can understand is, we talked about this in Genesis, the land and the seed of the land are two of the most significant things in the Bible. There are three things that are the most significant thing. Yahweh, humans, and the land slash seed. Because it is the land that God reveals and plants the seed in the garden that produces life. And then God puts the man in the land and then God dwells in the land with them. The land is where God and man come together in a relationship. And the seed imagery is going to be used not only of the blessings of God, but it's going to be used as a theological analogy analogy for the seed of the Messiah. And so the seed becomes both human biological seed, lines and descendants, but as well as plants and growing. And you're going to see that when you get to Isaiah, and Isaiah says, God has cut down the tree of Israel, but a shoot of David is regrowing now. And you're going to see that when Jesus comes along, the three symbols that represent Israel as a nation are the olive tree, the vineyard, and the um, fig tree. And that's why when Jesus is cursing the fig tree, everybody would have known that as I'm cursing Israel. That would be like Jesus walking in our nation, seeing a bald eagle and cursing it, and it dies. Everybody would know what he was saying about America. Okay, And so trees and bushes become symbols of nations and because they represent life. Okay, And so this would be Israel. So the bush becomes Israel symbolically. But it becoming on fire is Yahweh. Because fire is how God is going to portray his glory, his righteousness. Now, we'll talk about holiness in just a little bit. This is his glory. You've seen fire already. The first time that fire appears in a theological way is Genesis 15. And God comes to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And when they're cutting the animals and laying both sides on either side of the path, and the blood is there because a covenant cannot be made without blood, he sees a smoking torch and a fire torch going between the animals. So the first thing that God is doing here is that he has chosen the fire to remind Abraham, or sorry, Moses of the Abrahamic covenant. Because this fire is also going to come back later, and it's going to be the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So that every night and every day, they're seeing the two symbols of the Abrahamic covenant huge before them. And so the first reason that he's picking the fire here is to remind them of the Abrahamic covenant. So this is what it becomes. The fire also becomes the presence of God. Okay, the second reason he picks the fire is because fire 
is mysterious. We still to this day have no idea what fire is. Scientists don't know what fire is. We know how to control it. We know how to create it, but we don't know what it is. Light and fire and electricity are three things that we still have no idea what they are. And so there's a mysteriousness to it. There's an unknown quality to it. Fire is both beautiful. I mean, I could just sit all night and just gaze at a campfire. Yet at the same time, it's dangerous. And so the fire is a natural element that brings a danger, a terrible danger to it, a beauty to it, as well as a mystery that can bring both life and death. And this becomes a good symbol for a God. And this should remind you of Mr. Beaver with Aslan and Chronicles of Narnia when they say, oh, he's a lion, is he safe? And he's like, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's kind of what the fire is. Fire is not safe, but it is good. And so this becomes... Um, so, so it connects it to the um, covenant, but at the same time, it also connects it to this mysterious, beautiful, dangerous quality about who God is. The third reason that fire would be used is because fire is often used to communicate light, and God is first portrayed as a God of light in, the, in Genesis as he creates, and the light is a light of source um, of life. But it also is used to destroy and to bring judgment. And so this is very important to understand that God's presence, his fire, is going to be both one that brings life if you're being blessed by him, but it also will be a judgment. And we see this language. All throughout the Bible you see God is light and in him there is no darkness and and the kingdom of God will come back in the book of Revelation. There will be no need for the sun because God will be our light and the land will be our light and a light unto my path and the word of light and da-da-da-da-da. But at the same time, we also see that God's wrath is a consuming fire and the fire hits the church first and then the world and the world will be consuming the fire. And when Daniel has a vision of God, the throne is prepared and a river of fire comes out before his throne at which to wipe out the nations and, and the tree of Israel and Isaiah is scorched and burned with a fire. And so it communicates both that it is beautiful, it is good, it is dangerous, and God is going to use them both because he is both. And so this fire becomes the symbol of God's presence. And it's going to become a very powerful, dominant symbol when the tabernacle is built because it's actually going to sit on top of that thing. And so this is where it begins. Now, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 16, Right now it's a teeny little fire. Um, But when he brings him as a nation, it becomes greater. Because right now it's just a burning bush because it's just one man. When he becomes a nation, then it's this giant pillar. But in Deuteronomy 33, verse 16, we're told that God appeared to Israel in the fire and he um, shikhaned among us. The word shikhan is a Hebrew word for dwelt. So we're told that God dwelt with Israel in the fire. And so the Jew, the Israelites later begin to refer to this fire as the Shekhan or the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. And yes, there is a Christian school named the Shekinah Glo- Christian and their mascot is a little pillar of fire. I don't know whether that's okay or not. but um, um, So this is the Shekinah glory of God. And it's the way that he's going to dwell with them. Now, this is important, too, because this fire is going to shikan 
dwell on top of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is going to become the dwelling place where the presence of God can meet humans and come together. And this is where it gets cool, because when we get to John, then we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was the light of all mankind. And then we're told, and the Word became flesh, and the Word, and your, your English translations don't do this, but it says in the Greek, and the Word tabernacled among us. And so what it's immediately telling you is that Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. And then when you get to the transfiguration, he reveals the Shekinah glory of God. And then the Shekinah glory of God comes through the Holy Spirit as little tongues of fire and begins to indwell us as little mini tabernacles. And we'll talk about that a lot more when we get to the tabernacle. But God is intentionally, he's building the vocabulary that he's going to use. And I, I said this in Genesis, you've got to understand. If you do not understand the First Testament, you will not understand the Second Testament. Jesus is a really cool guy who helps people and dies on the cross, and that's important. You, if that's all you know, you can be saved and have a great relationship with him. But you're not going to understand how cool he is and every little thing that he's doing until you understand the first. Because God is going to develop these vocabulary and these themes all throughout the First Testament, and then Jesus is going to pull them all into himself and tie them all into himself. And this is one of those. And this is why we will never be given a picture of what Jesus looks like physically, but we're given many pictures of what he will look like theologically. And that's important to understand. But we'll t- when we get to the tabernacle, we will go through that big time. And so this is the fire that God is using to communicate to them. Now, we're told now that he comes to the fire. Notice that Moses' first response is to bow down. There's this fear and reverence there. And so he's told to take off his sandals because it is holy ground. There's a sense that you should come to the Lord naked. Now, I don't mean that you should all go home now and your prayer corner has to be naked or church has to be done that way. But Adam and Eve were created naked without shame in the garden. And then when, and what that means is they were bare. They were exposed. They were emotionally mentally and physically exposed to each other and they felt no shame because there was nothing dark or evil or sinful in them to hide or to be rejected over. And that's the way we should be with God. But when they sin, we're told that they realize that they were naked and they were filled with shame because now there's this, this, there's, they're vulnerable and they're ashamed of what they see in themselves and now they want to start building facades like we all do. And we start building defense mechanism and hiding and because we're afraid of rejection. Because we know, partly, there's a bunch of morons out there that will reject you for anything. And then partly because there really is something dark inside of you that should be rejected. And so this is that idea. So when God says, there's this idea where he wants you to come naked before him, totally vulnerable, totally exposed. Now, the Canaanite priests would actually strip down naked and they would go into the temple And they would also perform a lot of sexual acts in order to turn the gods on so the gods would bless them. And so God made it very clear to the priest, you don't do that. Okay, you cover your nakedness when you come to me. And you wear robes that are so long that when you walk up those high steps to something, nobody can like look up by accident. Okay, God makes that very clear. But at the same time, he still kind of wants that naked idea, so he doesn't allow them to wear shoes. 
And so God, knowing that nakedness now for us is a temptation that leads to sexual desire, he covers that because he doesn't want him to be connected with sexual practices like the Canaanites. But at the same time, he still wants to communicate that coming to him bare, vulnerable. And so he requires them to take their shoes off. And so that's a common theme in a lot of cultures. And so there's this idea that Moses is now coming to God's presence flesh to flesh, bear to bear. Now, God doesn't have any flesh, but the land is God's um, tangible thing, a blessing. And so Moses comes in because it's holy ground. Now, you cannot come in the presence of a holy God. And remember, Moses is guilty of the death penalty. He should be executed. So the first thing that you should expect as a good Israelite who knows the law is for a big bolt of fire to come out and burn him up. But it doesn't. Because God shows mercy to Moses and stays the law in order to use him in an act of grace. Now this is important. You need to understand that God is a just God. And a just God means that he has to deal with sin. He has to punish it. Justice means giving somebody what they deserve for a sin or a crime that they've committed. And you don't need to... The Bible makes it very clear that God is just. Not only in theological statements from the prophets, but you see it too. And it's because of his justice that the world today says, how could your God? So his justice is clearly established throughout the Bible. But he's also a merciful God. And a merciful God, being merciful means that he doesn't give you what you deserve. Now, you see that a lot in the Bible. It's just we don't tend to remember those scenes because our culture's trained us not to see them because it's easier to get you to hate God if you don't see those. My hope in Exodus is to help you see that that's very strong in the Bible, the mercy of God. Now, to be a just God and a merciful God is pretty easy to do in the garden. But the minute that Adam and Eve sinned, you can't be merciful and just at the same time. You can't give people what they deserve and not give them what they deserve at the same time. So now you have a conundrum with God. How can he be a completely just God and a merciful God at the same time in the face of sin? One has to be sacrifice. But if he shows justice, then his character is not merciful at that moment, and the beauty of who he is as God is not being seen. But if he shows you mercy and doesn't justly punish you, then he's not being true to his character either. Does this make sense? This is the conundrum. And you first see it in the garden. Now we're really going to see it. I'm, gonna, I'm just presenting the problem right now. There are no answers. And by the way, the Bible never ever really gives a complete answer to this question. So welcome to your theological hand grenade thrown near your door. We're going to talk about this a lot when we go to the golden calf because this really comes to a head when you have a God that loves his people so much that he was willing to save them from their idolatry out of Egypt and delivered them, and now they're worshiping a golden calf. 
and the justice of God, they have just agreed to the covenant. And they say, yes, we will do all the covenant requires us. And we know if we violate it, you will kill us. Yay, we want to be a part of this. And now they're doing it. And he's looking down and the covenant says he has to kill them all. Or he won't be just. But everything in God loves them so much that he'll eventually be willing to die for them. He says, I can't kill them. And this is where it gets a lot of scholars confused when we get to chapter 32. And you're like, what is going on, God? He seems like he's changing his mind and he's like ADD and da-da-da-da-da. It's not that. It's the conundrum. How can he be merciful and just at the same time? So when he comes to Moses, he chooses to show mercy, which means Moses is not justly punished. Now, you just need to know that for now. When we get to Exodus 30, or Exodus, yeah, 32, we'll, we'll unpack this problem a whole lot more. But I'm not going to give you answers if the Bible is not giving you answers right now. So, and by the way, I'll actually cheat. I'll give you the answer because you have to wait till the Gospels to actually get the answer. But we'll cheat when we get to 32 and skip ahead. Thank God you're a Christian. You don't have to wait thousands of years. So, but you have to understand, in a certain sense, this problem is never answered because that's the whole book of Job. Job's like, wait a minute. I'm righteous. I don't justly deserve to be punished, but you're punishing me. And he has the audacity to say, you're not just. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And then we don't understand that. We put it in our song and we sing it. Yay. But you're basically calling God unjust. And think about that next Sunday. Um, <laughs> but Job is never given an answer. We're never given an answer in that book either. Okay, this is a big problem that goes all throughout the Bible that God just kind of keeps putting in your face over and over and over again. And you've got to reconcile. He's just and he's merciful, but he's not and he's not, but he's good. And there's this tension. You have to understand, God's not interested in answering all your questions. He's revealing what he wants to reveal in order to have a relationship. And there's a lot of things he wants you to chew on. And if you've been a parent or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher or a camp leader, you know that. I mean, just my Vienna, my other, my daughter the other day was just like, she was hitting her sister and doing these things, and, and I had to put her in timeout, and she's my physically active one, so she was yelling and screaming and pushing against me, and, and everything in me knows that I have to justly keep her here, because if I don't, she'll think it's okay, and then she'll do it again, and then I have to be consistent and not punish her, and then she grows up to be that jerk of a person that nobody wants to be a friend with. So justice has to be there. But at the same time, like, I don't want to see her like that. And there's a part of me who's, like, hating myself as I'm, like, putting her in timeout. And she's crying and screaming and yelling and da-da-da-da-da. And everything in me wants to just give up and let her go out so she can be the happy child again. But you can't be both at the same time. Now, later I can go in and shorten her time out in an act of mercy but at that same time, I'm no longer just because I told her her punishment deserves to be this and it doesn't end up being that. You can't be both. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but even as a parent, a part of that struggle that you're feeling, that you know you have to do this, but at the same time you hate yourself and you think they're going to hate you and have counseling the rest of their life <laughs> is because you're facing what God is facing now, being just and merciful at the same time. You can't be both. You have to pick one. The unfortunate thing for us is God is all wise. He knows exactly when to do it and when not to. We're like, I wish I had a manual. Okay? But the, also the good thing for us is we have the Holy Spirit. 
to lead us and guide us if we could just actually go to him first. So this is the bush. So God is going to stay his justice in order to show his mercy so he can use God, Moses, to deliver. Now, how powerful would that be to you as someone who already has a deep sense of compassion for people? You know that you're guilty of murder and you've just faced the ultimate sovereign God of the universe in a big ball of fire. And his voice is so strong that it's going to make you pee your pants. And we know that when, because when we get to Mount Sinai, the people are like, we don't want to hear his voice anymore. And it doesn't mean it's so loud that the decibels are really high and it's worse than the Metallica concert. It means his voice is so righteous that it actually pierces into his soul and crushes their nature. It's, a, it's, it's more than just decibels. And this guy hasn't been praying. He hasn't been sacrificing. He hasn't been reading his Bible, even though it's not there yet. He has no relationship with God. He's a murderer. And God has just acquitted him. You already have a sense of compassion for people. And now you just received mercy from the most powerful being in the entire universe that could crush you in a second. And you're falling on the ground in absolute fear of this glory. What is that going to do to you as you go back to these people? And then these people are going to be a thorn in your side in the wilderness. Will you keep going back to that moment when you remember God could have killed you and he didn't? Does that give you a little bit more patience with these people? Because God knows exactly when to do it. Because Moses doesn't need to be taught a lesson right now. He's not the spoiled guy who's just going out inflicting pain on people. What he needs to know is the love of God. Some people have been so punished that they need an act of mercy. And some people have been so getting scot-free off all the time and not being punished that they need to be slammed into the ground. Different people need different things at different times. And Moses needs compassion. And so this is what he comes to. This God that's powerful this God is scary. This God is supernatural. This God that is unfathomable. And this God who's allowing this sinner to come into his presence and he's not dying. This is the transcendent God who is also intimately involved in people's lives. And that's what he presents to him. Now, you also have to understand that God is holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? We have been taught growing up 